Hello there. Welcome to Positive Changes, a self-kick podcast. I'm your host, Shelley F. Knight. I'm a former nurse and clinical hypnotherapist, turned podcaster and author of Positive Changes, a self-kick book and Good Grief, the A to Z approach of modern day grief healing. In each episode, I aim to share my clinical, spiritual, and personal experience to help you feel inspired to create your own positive changes in life. Fear not, it's not just me. Each week, I will bring on a new guest and they will share their authentic story of positive change and the tools that they used on their journey. So, if you're ready to be inspired, let's go. In this first episode of season three, I am honored to be joined by the most courageous woman, Jacqueline Phillips. Jacqueline is a suicide survivor and she's author of a book, Comfortably Uncomfortable. Her story today is for anyone who's felt rock bottom, is currently a rock bottom, but also for those of you that are left behind after a loved one has committed suicide. My time with Jacqueline brought up so much pain for me and I cried on air. I've cried editing this episode so please do grab your tissues and your listening ear. This is one powerful episode. Thank you so much for listening. Today on the show, I'm joined by Jacqueline Phillips, and she's an entrepreneur and author. So hello to Jackie. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us. I know you have quite a story to tell. So today we're going to be talking about surviving suicide. So please do share your story. So I already have PTSD and depression and anxiety. And I, growing up, was not given the coping mechanisms for how to deal with conflict and trouble and transition in my life. And I found myself at a point where my marriage was collapsing, my health was falling apart. I had just invested my entire life savings into a business and my car died. So it was like this massive trifecta of life just falling apart in front of you. And I I couldn't grasp that at the time there really was anything redeemable in my situation. I... I had the means and the opportunities, and I'm very fortunate in that in my moment of crisis, I was able to reach out and receive the help that I needed. Um, It's Suicide is interesting in that if you have the ideation, that's the most dangerous part, because once it's there, you either go with it or you stop it. And in most instances, suicide ideation lasts anywhere from one to three minutes for most people. And if you can get past that little pocket of time when it's the most dangerous, you win, you survive. Um, my, my son is my biggest motivation for still being here today because I couldn't control the narrative and I couldn't stop the impact that it would have on him. And I think at the end of the day, that was the biggest thing that held me back. Um, we don't talk about things like suicide because it's icky and it's not fun, but it's 
it's a real problem and it's something that's occurring even more so now and I think realizing that it's it's normal it's okay and it doesn't mean that you're a bad person there's a lot of stigma with someone who comes out and says yeah I I wanted to kill myself it's it's not because they were weak it was because they couldn't fight anymore they were exhausted and I think there's there's power in shifting the narrative and it's why I'm taking the time to share my story. I had goosebumps when you were talking there, because in my next book, Good Grief, when I talk about the ways that people can die, I actually start with suicide, because as you say, it's very taboo and people don't talk about it. And I'm a little bit of a, you know, <laughs> non-conformist, if I'm honest, Jacqueline. <laughs> so I start with people can die from suicide, because I here in the UK, somebody dies, like every few seconds, somebody will commit suicide and we still don't talk about it as if it's something that happens every day and in my book I say that suicide the difference between those who do and those who don't isn't that there's a line between us as such it's more there's a fine line within us so when you said about that ideation is like between one and three minutes whether you know you choose to live or die I got goosebumps because I didn't realize I know there's a fine line and there's a moment of decision but that is very small window isn't it and and that's the great thing about it is that it's so small you know if if you can have that little gem or resource or tool or nugget of this is temporary and that's that's a big thing that I'm, I'm really trying to push with people is that this is all temporary your feeling your fear your 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 terror inside you these are all temporary things and if you can just pull back from it just enough, you can get hold of it and take the next step so that you don't take the last step. And I, I applaud anyone who's ever been in this position because it's big and it's scary and it's overwhelming. And there's no guarantee that it won't happen again. The only difference now is that I have better tools and better resources and I'm not afraid to come out and say, I'm in a really bad place and I don't need to be here I need to get the help. We, we treat mental health as this taboo subject. And that's not fair because in a holistic approach, your brain is just as important as your leg. You wouldn't go walking on a broken leg. It's really hard to function when your brain isn't functioning at full capacity because of a disease like depression or PTSD or anxiety. We, we have this mentality that you're a bad person if you've thought about suicide or you've tried to commit suicide and that shame is is just as damning and it's it's what prevents I think a lot of people from reaching out is going well I'm going to lose my job or I'm going to lose my kids if I tell someone that I don't feel like living right now and that's even more dangerous because it just manifests this whole desire to just not be here. Because if I come to you and I say, I don't want to live anymore, and you take away the things that keep me living, that's even more dangerous. And I don't think we have properly thought about the consequences of those actions when people are in a mental health crisis and require assistance. I think it's so true. You mentioned the word shame. And there is a lot of shame that I've seen sadly with the family that left behind because I mean you had 
the post-traumatic stress anyway and then you had your health issues and the marriage issues the business and the finance that's a lot of things but sometimes just one area of those lives is enough isn't it to consider taking your own life and it is like I'm going to lose my job and I'm the breadwinner and it's people think I'm successful but I'm not because I'm made redundant and that's really when we should be reaching out but as you say we're not always heard or we have that shame that blame and all the things inside that we think we know what others are thinking which is never the truth and there's real consequences for reaching out there's people will look at you differently people will treat you differently the government will treat you differently if you are committed for mental health purposes uh, the judicial system here in the United States will treat you differently if you are committed for mental health systems. Um, it's just like going to rehab if, again, you broke your leg. doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you as a whole person. It meant that there was something broken in this moment and it needs to be repaired. And I think, you know, for those that have committed and have not survived, you know, there's there's a lot of grief in the family of, well, we didn't see it coming well, because we're not supposed to come talk to you about it. There's, there's a lot of stigma and, you know, especially for people with mental health disorders, we work really, really hard to cover it up and to not let people see it and to put on that overachieving, high-driven face of, I can do this. I've got anything. We can make it happen. And then we go home and we collapse because we've had this facade all day long of, I'm okay, I'm okay, and never treating the problem. We, we put on our daily band-aid over a bullet hole and expect us to keep going, but not addressing the problems. And it's no wonder that the rate of suicide is as high as it is. Yeah, and I think it's just, as you say, you, you sort of, we wear these masks and we're kind of living a life that's not ours. It's other people's expectations that we have to be, you know, this kind of like working mum or this successful man bringing home, you know, the money. You have to be driving that car or be seen in that supermarket, whatever. And we were always, I don't know why we're doing it. I think if we lived more in alignment with what we wanted, maybe we wouldn't feel so much of a people pleaser. But we just keep going and going through life. And it's exhausting, isn't it? I mean, at some point, something has to give. I think a lot of happiness is tied to consumerism. And I think that's dangerous. But I think that's another soapbox. <laughs> no it, it's yeah it is like it is like, I mean say here in England like keeping up with the Joneses it's quite an old saying now but it just meant like we always want to be doing the same as our neighbor or maybe slightly better but that's not our happiness at all do you no know what I mean? it's it's filling a void that we're told is there yeah if if you if you really invest and in, that's what I did with my book is I it broke down all those barriers that were actually keeping me from being happy. I, I had the benefit of, you know, therapists and life coaches and medication. And when it came down to it, the simpler things were, the happier I was. I, I don't need all the big shiny things to be happy. I, I need to be able to love myself and I need to be able to listen to my body and what it needs. And everything else just kind of comes second. And it's, it's really neat to be in a place where I can come and talk to people and let them know that they're not alone and that those feelings are real feelings and they are valid and they should be received as valid and to let them know that it's okay and that there's no shame in reaching out even when society tells you that there is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you've been through it 
you know, and I've certainly had times, not to the point of suicide, but I've certainly had what we call a semicolon moment. You just think where you sit there and you think, right, this is my life. If I stick to it and it's a little bit of crap at the moment, what if I end it? So it's not like I've actually thought, how am I going to do it? But I've had that time where you're thinking like, I'm exhausted is what it comes down to Jacqueline, really. I just had those moments. I had really bad fertility problems and I have had those semicolon moments where I just think I'm exhausted and I can't see the way over it, through it, round it. And I didn't think, right, so I'm going to commit suicide. But I just thought, what am I carrying on for? How do I know this thing better ahead? How do I reach out? You know, and I, you know, happily married with a husband, really cute kids. But we do have these, you know, these one to three minute periods, don't we? We just think like, hang on a minute, I'm exhausted. How do I get out of this situation? How do I get to the next minute? And sometimes you have to break it down in that small of a unit. Take the deep breath. How do I get to the next moment? How do I get to the next half hour? How do I get through the next hour? And sometimes slowing time down will reduce the severity of the intensity of that moment. And just going, okay, if I can just sit here without self-harming for 30 minutes or 10 minutes, maybe I can get past this. And it, we have the suicide prevention hotline. We have crisis hotlines here in the United States. Uh, we don't make them readily available and accessible to people in time of need. Um, I'm not sure how it is over there with you guys, but mental health is one of two things. It's either this dirty, ugly secret that we don't talk about, or it's this monetized thing. And that's great if you've got money, but mental health is a universal problem that affects every demographic. And the fact that we don't put more energy into the resources for people of low income or special needs who don't have the tools and the means to get the help they need, that I think is just as dangerous as having a bevy of pharmaceuticals and not knowing the long-term side effects. So do you have to pay for mental health services in the US? Um, so we don't have universal health care here in the United States. Uh, so to give you an example, um, my husband just switched jobs. He's at a wonderful company, but he left a company that had fantastic health insurance. And so the medication that I was taking was 45 cents for 30 days. When we switched insurance, it was going to be $160 for 30 days. Wow. This is a mental health medication that kept my depression under control and managed my anxiety. This was the catalyst for actually getting off my medication because that's a large chunk of a budget dedicated to a pill that helped me function. Um, he's taking a current medication that is $800 a month because it's not covered by insurance. But if he doesn't take this, he will develop a blood clot and die. We, we don't take care of our own over here. It's, it's really depressing. And it's considered a radical idea to give everyone the health care they need and deserve. Wow. I knew that it was different to the UK, but that is huge. I mean, your medication that provides you with a good quality of life, having to chosen to carry on with life, has gone from being like the price of a loaf of bread to the price of a weekly shop. Yes. That is it's, shocking. It's the, same, it's the same with getting to the hospital. People will take a car service like Uber or Lyft rather than call an ambulance because of how the system works. It's 
the price of a car to take an ambulance to the hospital. It's the price of a cocktail to take a car service. We, we just, we don't do a very good job with health services in the United States. And it's, it's a big problem here. People have to choose whether they take their medication or whether they just die. That's almost like suicide, isn't it? Because you're still making that choice, but sometimes you don't even have the ability to choose because it comes down to finances, but you have a really positive mindset to live. It still yeah. might not be a viable option for you to live. Yes. It's, it's mind boggling, especially when there are countries like yours who can effectively do it and do it well. And for us to just ignore that model, it's, it's very challenging. It, it doesn't help the situation when people are having to decide, do, do I take my medication so I can live or do I make sure that my family can eat and I will just die? And that's no way to live. I'm wondering if in the US and other countries where you may have to fund your healthcare more, if there's a higher instance of suicide, because that's just, even if you weren't oh, going to- it absolutely is. Yeah, because I think you'd be overburdened anyway, thinking oh, I'm going to lose my jobs, I can't provide, and that's my role as a mother, father, you know, grandparent, whatever. But then as I say, then it's another worry on top of your worry that's always enough to take your life in the first place. Yeah. It, it, for some, it's just easier because it's too much of a burden to cripple their family's finances to afford the medications they need to live. A lot of people will forego treatment, they'll avoid the hospital, and by that point, they're sicker than they needed to be because it's too expensive to go in the first place. It, it's a really broken system, and it's considered very radical here to try and amend it, even though we're the wealthiest nation in the world, and we're considered a first world nation, but we are like 11th in healthcare. And I think we're one of the only countries in the world that doesn't have some form of universal healthcare. It, it certainly makes mental health services much harder to access. Um, had I gotten to the point where I needed to go to a facility, there's no way I could have afforded it. There's no way I could do 30 days inpatient and keep my kid and keep my business and pay my bills. I had to find out how to make this all work because I couldn't access that level of care. And it's a very unique conversation that I'm having with you because I've never looked at it from this perspective and I've never dialogued it in this perspective, but we're really putting our citizens at a disservice by not giving them better access to things that make us productive members of society. It's, it's a broken cog in the system and we, we don't treat it. We just brush it under the rug and say, well, that's what happens. They should have worked harder. Should have pulled yourself up by your bootstraps. Well, you have to teach a child to tie their shoes. Teaching people to resolve their mental health issues or to find the tools to help them in mental health crisis requires outside assistance. You can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps if you never learned how to tie your shoes. Wow, it's so true. And I, I'm i just blown away, but a negative way from the country, but a positive way from the strength for you speaking out. I'm very passionate about people speaking their truth. And obviously you're here to say, could you survive suicide? But in my head, I've got a thousand questions, Jacqueline, um, because you talked about some tools that you used. Yes. I'm now thinking, did you fund those tools yourself? Or are you like myself? You believe a lot of the healing tools we carry are within us. So 
please share about your tools you use to recover? So I, I grew up in a very toxic home. Um, there was a lot of deceit and misgivings about how we interact in the world around us. And so I developed a lot of really bad coping mechanisms as a child into my adulthood. And I didn't have an adult to come in and say, that's a really bad way to handle these things. Let me teach you how to do it better. So instead, I took all those things and that big chip on my shoulder and I went, I got this. I, I didn't have it at all. Um, in fact, I was a self-sabotager from start to finish. And so I, I had to get tools because I had an empty toolbox and the house that I built was not very solid. Uh, brick house now. However, <laughs> you know, when you don't have tools in the toolbox, you can't really build the house you need to to survive. So I did fund my own, you know, my life coach. I paid for myself. My therapies with ketamine and Effexor, I funded myself. When I went to therapy, I funded it myself. I'm very, very fortunate that I am in a financial situation where I can do those things. Um, you know, with ketamine, it's experimental here in the United States. It's still not FDA regulated. Um, for those that are familiar with it, it is called Special K. You can get it on the street. It's a street drug. Um, when you actually take it and you inject it as a IV solution at a very small concentration, it's actually been proven to reopen the connectors for norepinephrine and epinephrine, which are the receptors for your neurochemistry. Uh, depression will actually kind of shut them down. So uh, a good analogy is um, sunflowers turn towards each other on cloudy days to give each other light. It's really a neat thing. Uh, your brain sort of does the same thing. It just kind of bounces good things off of each other. Well, when those sunflowers close up, they can't receive light. Same thing with your neurons. If they're not opened up, they're not receiving those good chemicals that make you function and feel good. Um, ketamine will actually start to reopen those. But again, considered experimental, it's an off-label use, it's not covered or not secured by the FDA over here. So it's very costly and it's very experimental. And I'm really grateful that I found it when I did because it made a significant difference in my life. But it was because I had the means and the resources to be able to afford all of these therapies that I'm able to be here today speaking with you and talking to people about how to fill their toolbox. I feel that as someone who had those opportunities, I need to take that knowledge and share it with those who may not have those opportunities. Pharmaceuticals are great. There are limitations to them. They don't solve everything. And that's where my life coach came in handy. That's where my therapist, that's where my trauma therapist came in handy, where we were able to go back and get to the root of where the weed had grown that had manifested in my mind going, oh yeah, you should just do this instead of that because that feels good right now, but you're going to feel like garbage later. So you, you develop all of these maladaptive ways of coping and we, we think that they're working. That's what our brain tricks us into. It's, it's a real Jedi mind trick of, oh yeah, that, that works great. And then you get home at the end of the day and you're like, that really wasn't what I should have been doing. I can't keep doing this. And that's, that's that moment of, okay, I don't want to do this anymore. 
what do I got to do to get out of it? Yeah, it's, I love what you're saying. So my background is nursing. And I used to see it with people that would give them like pharmaceutical solutions because we were a medical ward. Yes. And it used to be a lot with the alcoholics that I used to deal with. And I've said it in other episodes as well, that I'd only been like a newly qualified shiny nurse. <laughs> and we had to write about, write about, you know, what difference it make to the hospital. And mine was, well, I would give mental health support, like talking therapies to the alcoholics to find out why they were drinking in the first place. What was the trigger before that behavior? What was the trigger before that choice to drink ourselves, you know, almost to death? And I got shot down in flames, Jacqueline. They were just sort of like, we don't have alcoholics here. That's not the problem. You know, we've got to look at cancer and all this. And I was just like, but they come in every 12 weeks. It's cyclical. You can see them. They sort of go out, try and think it's going to be different. And they get scared, want connection and shelter. They come back in again. We're not asking, why did you do that? What happened in your childhood? What choice did you make? How did you end up on the streets? Because you know, a lot of them are homeless, no fixed abode. So I get what you're saying, like the pharmaceuticals is a great support mechanism to keep and your front bottom. it's only a piece of the puzzle. Yeah, but why did you have to go on the pharmaceuticals in the first place? You know, maybe it is genuinely just a chemical imbalance. Maybe there's no trauma, nothing. But I'd say in the main, a lot of us have had like, you know, started a life that wasn't ours to live, been directed by others. You know, there's trauma, there's upset, there's loss. So then the pharmaceuticals are going to support you through that healing journey but you need to know what you're healing. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't think there's a lot of emphasis put on that. It's here. The TV guy says, these will make me happy. I'll take these. Why am I not happy? Maybe I'll take those. Maybe this will make me happy. It's, it's this never ending cycle of, well, let's just throw a pill at it and see what fixes. But that's not a fix. That's, that's supporting you so that you can go, okay, this is what the problem is. This is what we need to focus on. And, and that's, that's what mental health is. It's, it's, a, it's a building of things in a timeline that either support you and build you in positive ways, or they pull you down and you either have the means to get past that moment or you have to reach out. I think it's amazing when people take the time to reach out and not have an agenda. So often, you know, people would ask me, you know, what would you have wanted to have happen prior to your suicide attempt? And I think the thing that I wanted the most was just to someone say, I see that you're hurting. Can I, can I talk to you about it? Can I help you with it? Do you want to talk about it? I'm not here to judge. I'm just here to listen. Because I just wanted to scream and go, why is my life like this? How did I get here? Why do I have to keep doing this? Is there an option? And instead, I we use the colloquialism. I'm fine. Everything's fine. It's okay to not be okay. And we have to normalize that. Life is hard. There, there's hurt and there's loss and there's rejection and there's fear. And we, we, we put this, this price tag on everything and go, for this much, you'll feel better. For this much, you can get through this. But we're, we're never treating the person who, who has those feelings and those thoughts and saying, what can I do to help you in this moment? I see that you're hurting. And even, even now, I still have days where I some, sometimes just want someone to call or text 
And instead, because I know that those things don't happen if I don't manifest them, I will reach out to them. And I'll say, hey, I'm feeling really lonely today. Can we just talk? And it's not because there's something wrong with me. It's because I'm having a feeling and it needs to be addressed. And usually by reaching out to someone, it will start the catalyst of, okay, I felt this way. I'm going to take these active steps so that I don't feel this way. Because once I can remove that emotion, I can identify the problem. And sometimes it's, it's been a few days since I've reached out to anybody. And I need to hear someone's voice, especially during the pandemic. I'm seeing the same two people all day long in my home. I still get lonely. I still want companionship. So I text a girlfriend and say, hey, can we just talk? And it's not because there's something wrong with it or because I, I'm in crisis. It's, it's identifying that if I don't address the issue now, it's only going to get worse. Your, your gut is amazing in giving you signals. And so often we don't listen to our internal voice. We, we've tamped it down. We've ignored it. We've covered it up as something else. But your, your internal voice is strong and there's a reason why it exists. And if you stop to listen to it, you'll often be able to get to the root of a problem. And sometimes a great example for me is I will be very upset, but I'm not sure why. And it's kind of like soda bubbles. You, you pour a glass of soda and the, the carbonation kind of works itself yeah. to the surface and a bubble will pop. And that bubble was something that has been bugging me for a while, but hasn't had a chance to breathe. And it'll breathe and I'll snap and I'll, I'll, just, I'll just announce it. I'll say, hey, I'm having a bad day. I'm not sure what the problem is right now. Please be patient with me. Give me some grace. I will figure it out and we'll address it when I get there. But know that I'm going to be okay. And I say it out loud, not just so that my husband and my son understand that I'm having a rough day, but because voicing it into the universe means it's real and it exists. I think that's so important. I just love the way you're really open with your husband and that. I was just going to go back to where you said it's okay to not be okay. And I think that's starting to be used more now, especially with grief. We use it like it's okay to not be okay. But I always love what you've just said. It's okay to not be okay as long as you do something about it that and that's the big the actionable part yeah yeah, yeah. You, you have to take action you if the leaky faucet is still running you don't just leave it and go it'll be better tomorrow no you have to get under the cabinet with a, a wrench and turn it off like there, you have to be actionable that's the biggest goal or takeaway from all of this is it only gets better if you take action upon it and it's scary and it's uncomfortable. And we have to start getting more comfortable with expressing uncomfortable truths and acknowledging that things are uncomfortable because in that you're able to find that inner strength and go, okay, but this is temporary. I'm going to be uncomfortable temporary, kind of like a pap smear. You're going to be uncomfortable <laughs> for a minute, but at the end, you know that you don't have cervical cancer. There are uncomfortable issues in life. We have to be okay with them and we have to let them breathe and exist so that we can deal with them in a healthy way rather than tamping them down and expecting that you got this. Good. No, I absolutely love what you're saying. So obviously I'm very passionate about people creating positive changes and you've done it. You're here sharing your amazing story. Do people treat you differently 
when they know you're a suicide survivor, like when you say I'm having a bad day, they're like, oh my God, panic stations, or because you're so open, is it okay? How do people treat you now? Well, prior to getting to this point, I didn't really tell people. So for a lot of people, especially my close friends and family that read the book, they they were flabbergasted. They didn't understand how I got to that point because on paper, I was killing it in life. You know, I'm a seven out of a 10 on a good day. It's a little early over here. I'm a little tired. Uh, <laughs> you know, I've got a family unit. I've got a business. I'm in great shape. I'm I'm seen popular online. Like I, on paper, I looked amazing. And inside I was a dumpster fire. And to, to tell that to people really, it changed their opinion for a moment. And then they stopped and they went, you know, I'm really glad you told me, even if I found it out this way, I'm still glad you said it because I had no idea. And I think, I think I'm possibly normalizing it you know, that those are real thoughts that even successful people have and people that look like they've got it all together. We all have moments like that. Um, you know, now I don't think it's as big of a deal for people in my inner circle when I reach out to them. In fact, a lot of them who understand my challenges will thank me and say, hey, I'm really glad I'm on your team or I'm really glad you reach out to me when you're having those moments. because." we all have value. We all, we all bring something into this universe and we all mean something to someone and your absence will be felt. And, you know, in the beginning of the segment, I had mentioned that, you know, this is all temporary. Suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Whatever you're going through, it is temporary. But if you aren't here to complete that problem, there's, there's no coming back from suicide. Once it's done, it's done. And I think, I think we don't, we don't do a very good job of reaching out when we need it. And I think that's what's scary. So it's, it's really interesting to be at a point where I can reach out to people now and say, I'm not, I'm not at a 10 on this scale. I'm at like a three, but I don't want to go any higher. So can you help me? Yeah, it is. I mean, almost it shouldn't be. I know, Jacqueline, I know it shouldn't be. But it's almost like when you're absolutely exhausted and burnt out at the point of considering suicide, it's when you need to be most courageous and ask for that help, that connection to not feel invisible. It's not weakness. It's bravery. It yeah. is absolute innate bravery to have. I compare it to a soldier in battle who has one bullet left in the gun and he still fires, even though he's dying. It's that last courageous moment. It's not weakness when you reach out for help. It's, it's bravery because you're being so vulnerable and we don't appreciate vulnerability in people. We mock it and we criticize it. And that's, that's when we need that support the most is when we're being our most vulnerable and our bravest. Brave is a very good word for it because there's there's no weakness in asking for help and realizing that something is beyond your ability. Yeah, I mean, I think it just well, it, it can just change the whole situation that there may not be a death because obviously I've worked with people, the family that left behind in suicide and 
all grief's hard you know it's a process we go through there's a lesson in there even though we may not want to see it but I think when your grief stems from like something sudden like a suicide it's a complicated grief because you're like left behind if only I'd done this if only I made that call if only I hadn't put off that you know that day if only I'd done this it's not only got the physical void because that person's no longer here you just spend your years the rest of your time just questioning that it's your fault you could have done something you know the person that's committed suicide has got shame the people left behind have the blame and it's really hard to move on and we could just get to the point like you're saying you know having one last go just making that one call you know that one to three minute window quite literally a life changer isn't it it is it absolutely is and i I think if we can change the mentality behind it, and especially for those that are left behind and are grieving, there there isn't some actionable thing that you could have done. It was up to the person who was in that moment to make that action. There's there's a hundred interactions that we incur in a day, whether it's out in the world or in our homes or you know over a Zoom call. And, and all of those things add up. So whether or not you reached out to that person may not have been the saving moment because in that moment, they're probably their most isolated. I was my most isolated in my moment. I had no one around me. I didn't want anyone around me. I was terrified and I was afraid to come to someone and nobody knew what was going on. I had it all hidden. I was locked in a spare bedroom. No one would have known. It's, it really goes back to just being nice to people. You know, if, if we improved our interactions with everyone around us and we spent a little more time being gentle with ourselves, I think we would be able to start to reframe what mental health crisis looks like and how we can treat it, and how we can build the mentality that these are temporary moments. We get 24 hours in a day. And even if you didn't give your best that day, you get a whole other 24 hours the next day to try it again. Instead of this problem is constantly weighing and breaking me down. It's let me get through this one. Try it again tomorrow. Let me get through this moment. And I'll try to do a little bit better tomorrow. Nothing anybody would have done would have stopped me. It was entirely me going, I can't control the outcome of this and how many people I'm going to hurt. And in that moment, I had enough resolve to say, I got to get help. There's no blame on the people around that person. And there shouldn't be. There's nothing that anybody, no one went to me and said, here's a gun, kill yourself. This was a culmination of years of trauma and pain and a lack of resources and help because I thought I could shoulder it all on my own. And a lot of us feel that we can shoulder our depression or anxiety all on our own. We're not meant to do this alone. We're meant to have others in our circle and we have to be vulnerable with the people closest to us because they're not going to see it. You know, 
when you see the same person every day, you don't notice those changes. You don't notice the behaviors until it's in a dangerous place or until it's so erratic that it's not in the normal range. You have children. All of a sudden you look over and they're four inches taller, or at least my son did that this year. You live with them every day. You don't notice those little things until it's right in front of your face or it's too late. So I, I would say that if, if you are someone who has lost someone to suicide, please know that it, it had nothing to do with you and it's, it's not about you. If there wasn't anything that you could have done to rescue them. It's wholly entirely upon them finding that moment of bravery in the most dire of situations. And part of letting them live in peace in the afterlife would be to live in peace in your life. I might just have a little cry. I'm just, I've seen people, you know, the found left behind for years. And I just hope, I just know it will hope, not, you know, there's people out there today and I've seen them they don't move on in any death even if you know but the blame and shame I've seen I think those words you just shared are just amazing and I'm all right crying now I don't mind <laughs> so you spoke about the people that you know whether it's a busy mom or entrepreneur millionaire it doesn't really matter as we said there's a fine line within us difference between why we commit suicide and why we don't for those that are shouldering everything today and wearing that mask, what would be the one positive change you'd say they could make today to not take their life? I think for anybody that's in that moment to give themselves some grace, to just know that it's temporary, to give yourself some love and to know that there are vast numbers of resources out there and that it's okay to ask for help. There's, there's no shame in asking. Um, there's a lot of people that, that aren't in that crisis moment that are just worn out and exhausted. And I would tell them that you don't have to do everything. No one can do everything. We're, we're not superheroes. That's, that's why that's called science fiction. We're, we're not those people. And to just focus on doing one really good thing that day. And that may be as small as getting out of bed and taking a shower. If you're, if you're that low, the littlest thing, just give it that 100%. Even if everything else goes to pot, just do that one thing for yourself that's good and give it 100% and know that Tomorrow's another opportunity to add another 10%. Maybe the next day you'll send a message to a friend and say, hey, I'm in a low place. Can we just talk? We put so much pressure on ourselves to be so many things and to do so many things and make all these accomplishments and, and strive for all of these things that ultimately may not make us happy. But if we can just focus on being good to ourselves and listening to our bodies and what they need, everything else becomes a little easier and the load becomes a little lighter. I think, Jacqueline Phillips, you're the most amazing woman. 
I'm uh, crying. I think it's amazing. Um, yeah, <laughs> I don't have words. I have tears, but I don't have words. Sometimes those are okay for words. Yeah, because... I'm going to use that. <laughs> Anyone clearly, watching on YouTube, I'm crying. Into something. Yeah, you know, sometimes our tears can be our words when we don't have the words. Words are hard. Words are very hard, especially when we don't know what the words mean. And that's okay. It's okay to not know the words for the feelings that we have. But it's far more important to acknowledge that they exist. Yeah. I think it's just really powerful. And I honestly think you're going to make a huge difference. Thank you so much for joining me today. You've absolutely blown me away. Thank you for having me. This, this was a very unique opportunity and I greatly appreciate you. I, I applaud you as someone who also used to work in healthcare. Thank you for the time that you put in that. That is an exhausting job at the best of times. So thank you for the things that you do. Oh, I just want to thank you for being you. I'm really glad that I can be here to talk to you. It's it's really it's really exciting to be at a point where I can help others through my journey rather than just being another mark on the wall. Ooh. Thank you so much, Jacqueline. If you enjoyed today's episode, please make sure you subscribe and leave a positive review. If you would like to create your own positive changes, you can buy Positive Changes, a self-kickbook from all online book retailers or from ShellyFKnight.com. If you need a dollop of positivity until the next episode, come like and follow us over on Facebook at Shelley F. Knight, Life Goes On. As always, I've been Shelley F. Knight and you've been amazing. <laughs>